0: I would invite you to join me in opening your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. It Again, this is the second week in a row. Um, I have to slightly modify the text in your bulletin. I had every intention of making it all the way to verse 43, but as of Friday afternoon, I discovered the impossibility of of doing so. And uh, I couldn't rush the last 10 verses. Uh, Verses 34 to 43 are the verses when Peter opens his mouth and does the very thing that God had been preparing him and Cornelius to do, to to, uh, preach the gospel. And so that will have its own uh, Sunday next week. So we will... Uh, Just make it to verse 33 today. But before we do, I want to briefly provide some context as to where we are in case you happen to be out of town um, and weren't with us last week. This chapter begins by Luke introducing us to a man named Cornelius. He's an officer in the Roman military. He's a centurion. He's been posted in the city of Caesarea, and he's also an upstanding, moral, generous individual who has been exposed to Jewish monotheism, and he wishes to learn more about the God of Israel. One day he's praying, and he's visited by an angel. And the angel informs him that his prayers have been heard. Even though he is a Gentile, his prayers have been heard, and that he is to immediately send for a man named Peter. Peter is staying in the house of Simon the Tanner about 30 miles away. And he's to go and send for him immediately. And so so Cornelius, being the good soldier he is, he responds to those commands and he sends three men to Simon Peter. Well, then the scene shifts to Peter. It's the following day in Joppa and it's around midday. Peter is hungry. Lunch is not ready, though. It's still being prepared. And so he goes up on the roof to pray. And Luke tells us that in that moment, Peter sees the heavens opened and this great sheet descending to the earth and the four corners of this sheet uh, are are being held and it's almost like an upside-down umbrella or an upside-down parachute. And within the four corners of this sheet, there are all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. And if that vision wasn't shocking enough, what he hears next... Sends him over the edge. Peter hears a voice from heaven that says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. He vehemently protests this. He says, By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And then he hears a response from heaven. It's the theme verse from last week. What God has made clean, do not call common. We looked at some general applications of those words last week, but here's where we're picking up. Peter is really confused by what he's seeing and hearing. Verse 17 tells us he was inwardly perplexed, but we're going to see him make the connection that the Lord is not simply talking about food. He's talking about people. In verse 28, Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, we're, what we're going to see today is really the preparation that happens between these initial visions and the gospel being proclaimed and the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles. So today we're just prepping, getting everything in place for that to happen. And we're reminded that this is a really long narrative. This is the longest narrative in the book of Acts. I don't know if you knew that. If you like Bible trivia, now you know. Uh, This narrative of Peter and Cornelius and the conversion of Cornelius. And we can ask, why, why would Luke spend so much time on this narrative? Well, usually, length of time points to importance, And this is a monumentally important event. It's monumentally important because it's the story of how Christianity became the major world religion and not just a branch or sect of Judaism. Now, let's talk about some numbers real quick. Do you know how many people currently alive on planet Earth practice Judaism? It's around 14.7 million. 14.7 14.7 million. Okay. How many people today practice or identify as Christian? It's 2.3 billion. Now, I know when we start talking in numbers of millions and billions and trillions, it's hard for us to understand and comprehend numbers that large. Um, in the news recently, you're hearing... Bills and legislations that are billions and trillions. and It's hard to imagine the size of that. So I I just want to help you visualize it. Okay, We're going to have two baskets. A basket here, basket A, and basket B. Basket A is going to be for those who practice Judaism. We're going to take the entire population of Pennsylvania, and we're going to put it in that basket. And then to get us where we need to be, we're going to take the entire population of Rhode Island, and Delaware. Put those two states in that basket. So you've got all of Pennsylvania, all of Rhode Island, and all of Delaware in basket A. Basket B is going to contain all of the Christians. Start with what is the largest country population-wise in the world? China. We're going to take all of the Chinese, put them in basket B. Then we're going to add not just three states, but all 50 states, D.C., Guam, Puerto Rico, all American citizens, put them in that basket. Okay? Now we need to—I want to make sure I get all my countries. (laughs) We aren't there yet. We're going to add all Brazilians, all Mexicans, all Japanese, and just for good measure, the Brits. We'll put them in there. So you've got every citizen of China, the United States, Brazil, Mexico, Japan, and the United Kingdom. Add all of those together, and that is a picture of how many people alive on planet Earth today identify as Christians. Now that is a massive difference. How do you explain it? Acts 10 explains it. Acts 10 shows us that God's plan for his church is not that it would be some sect or offshoot of Judaism. It's not even that the church would replace Judaism and become mainstream among Jews and that all Jews would simply become Christians. No, it's more than that. When it comes to the expansion of the church, God is thinking, of course, of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but he is also including those scattered to the ends of the earth. You know, I talked last week about this is, how this is our story. And still, as far as I'm aware, there's not anyone in this room who comes from Jewish heritage. Right? You don't come from a Jewish family, which means we're all Gentiles. And where were your ancestors 2,000 years ago? Whether they were European or African, or whether they were from the East, from Asia, or maybe you've got some relatives uh, in your family tree that were Native American. Irregardless, we're all in the same boat. We are all Gentiles, and Acts 10 shows us that the gospel is for all people and not just the Jews. In Isaiah 49.6, the Lord is speaking to his covenant people, Israel, through the prophet, and he makes this statement. He says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. As Israel's job. That was their calling to be a light for the nations. Now it's a calling they executed imperfectly. And we probably would have done the same in their place. But we do remember that there was one. There was one Israelite who was perfect. The perfect Israelite. The one who perfectly served as a light for the nations. He did all that God required of him fully and completely. So much so that the scriptures describe him as the light of the world. And through him and through his work, salvation came to the Gentiles. And the Lord has thrown the doors open so that anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus would come to know and possess that salvation. See, this story isn't simply about food and clean and unclean things we can eat. It's about clean and unclean people and they're being made one in Christ. We're going to see this, but let's pray first. Father God, we... uh, ask that you would speak to us through your word. Um, Would I speak all that you have commanded? Uh, Would I speak faithfully um, all that you have commanded? That your people would hear your word and that you would do a mighty work in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts 10, beginning in verse 17 to verse 33. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry uh, for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Arise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear What you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. When I was sent for, so when I was sent for... I came without hesitation. I asked then why you sent for me. Cornelius said four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter, He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. We're seeing preparation. Preparation being made for these Gentiles to hear the gospel and receive the Holy Spirit. We see it begin in verse 17. Peter is reeling from this vision and this command. He has no idea what to make of it. And in God's providence, at that very moment, the three men sent by Cornelius arrive. And Peter, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he goes down to them. Meets them, hears the reason for their coming, and invites them inside to be his guests. Now we need to stop right there and just recognize how culturally taboo this is. I don't know if we quite grasp the, the distinction um, and cultural boundaries and fences that were in place that kept Gentiles and Jews apart from one another. Uh, this, this did not happen. Inviting Gentiles into your home to be your guests, it didn't happen. Now, I, I know most of us know what anti-Semitism is. Hostility towards Jewish people, prejudice against Jewish people, and we can all think of names such as Auschwitz and Dachau and Buchenwald that instantly will bring to mind the horror of what is capable when that kind of hatred is allowed to fester and metastasize. And uh, I, I don't want to diminish that evil and wickedness in any way, but we need to recognize that in Peter and Cornelius' day, there was reverse discrimination happening. Non-Jews, Gentiles were seen as lesser. They were dirty, impure, unworthy. Uh, The Jews, in one hand, were, were clean, and the rest of humanity was just one big, gross, unclean mass. And the attitude was, well, the Gentiles, they aren't loved by God because they weren't chosen by God, and he has not offered to them salvation. And to be fair, God did choose Israel. They were his treasured possession But it wasn't because of something inherent within them that made them better. There was nothing within them that made them stand out ahead above the crowd. No, he actually tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that, uh, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. Well, then why would he choose them? He says, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So the Lord did choose Israel. It's not because of any inherent goodness uh, within them. It was not because that they would, they would better him or help his, his stock. No, it was because he loved them and he was keeping an oath that he swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But the Jews took this choosing as something that made them better and so they would look down on the Gentiles and they would only associate with one another. And and they developed all these customs and traditions over the years that built fences between them. And Peter actually acknowledges this in verse 28. We we read verse 28, and we think, man, Peter's being very condescending here. He sounds very condescending. This is rude. He shows up at this house, and he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Now, he's acknowledging the culture of the day, that Jews and Gentiles did not... Uh, associate with one another. He just starts with the elephant in the room and says, I know this is where we're all coming from. This is the water we live in. But these are not traditions and laws that God had commanded. You could look back at God's rules of associating with Gentiles and there's a clear one in Deuteronomy 7 that Jews were not to marry Gentiles. Do not give your daughters to their sons in marriage, or do not take their daughters for your sons in marriage. Do not marry Gentiles. And then he tells exactly why. The Lord says, For they would turn away your children from following me and serve other gods. So the reason for separation there is about worship. I don't want your children to turn away from following me. I don't want them to worship other gods, so they don't need to marry an unbeliever. That's still in effect, by the way, today. As a minister of the gospel, I cannot marry a believer to an unbeliever for those same reasons. But notice here, God's command in Deuteronomy 7-3 had nothing to do with skin color. It had everything to do with worship. But over time, traditions had been put in place to where... You could not associate, could not talk with, could not eat with, or even enter the home of a Gentile without being made unclean. And Peter acknowledges this. And we see a tremendous change by Peter inviting these three into his home. Well, he, he does just that. We're told the next day that they depart and head for Cornelius' home in Caesarea. Some brothers go with Peter. Those are fellow Christians there in Joppa. We're later told that there were six of them total that go with Peter. They're going to serve as witnesses who will come back and testify to the church about the truthfulness of Peter's story and what God is doing among the Gentiles. But this group heads north. Verse 24 tells us that Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. There's a medical missions group that comes to mind. I've seen, I've seen some of their videos online. It's a group of guys who are former U.S. special forces, uh, but they're also physicians, and they'll travel to impoverished countries and just go out in the middle of nowhere and offer medical treatment and field surgery uh, to these villagers. You'll have kids who will run around all day barefoot around livestock, and so they'll get worms, and so they'll be given deworming pills, um, and then all kinds of different things they'll do. There was, there was one, uh, I saw there was a lady who had a growth on her back, a young lady who had a growth on her back, and unless that cyst was removed, she'd probably never get married, and so they, they took it out and sewed her up. Um, And so it gave her a, a future. But basically, whenever word gets out that these guys are coming, it spreads like wildfire. And people just come out of the woodwork. So when these guys roll up into camp, you've got people staring out every window and every doorway, just gathered, ready to receive medical attention well, that's a bit like what's going on here in Acts 10. You know, Cornelius is not some poor villager in the jungle. He's wealthy. He's an influential officer in the Roman military. He's got a great post. He's in Caesarea on the coast. Um, and yet, he is aware of his spiritual poverty. He's aware that despite his good works and despite the community thinking very well of him, despite his generosity, he knows that he is in need of a Savior. And he's been praying for a Savior. He's been praying that someone would come and tell how he and his household might be saved. And so he gathers his friends and family. He tells them to come so that when Peter... And the rest arrive. They're ready and prepared to hear the words of life. Well, once Peter arrives in verse 25, we're told he enters and Cornelius meets him and then falls down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Now, I want to be gracious to Cornelius here, because in all the description that we're given of Cornelius, I, this, this was a man who had good intentions. He wanted to do the right thing. He was just a little confused here, to say the least. And, and there's some real humility in Cornelius. He, he could have thought, you know, I'm a Roman centurion of the Italian cohort, and I summoned you, you, you poor, measly, Preacher, fisherman, I said, come, and you came. You did as you were told. Now, what do you have to say to me? He didn't have that attitude. He, he sees Peter as a superior and wants to bow before him. He wants to honor this man that the angel had spoken of, and the one who'd been used in raising Tabitha from the dead the one who is going to speak the words of salvation to them. And so he falls down and worships him. The Greek here means to kiss toward. That's what he does, but it's ill-placed. His greeting is overdone. It's inappropriate to say the least, and Peter corrects him and says, Stand up. I, too, am a man. I'm not God. Don't give me... What belongs to God alone? You know, I I think we can look down our nose and kind of snicker at Cornelius here, but we do the same thing. Uh, Whatever you're into, uh, whatever you get excited about, think of who's who's the best at that. Uh, There's a there's an area of life, whether it's sports, whatever it is. Who do you idolize? Who you put on a pedestal? I remember back in 2016, I went to a pastor's conference in Louisville, Kentucky. And one of the keynote big boys who was going to preach to us was this guy I'd been following since 2009. I probably listened to hundreds of his sermons and read his books and really idolized this guy. And I was excited to see him at the conference, but then I found out the second day of the conference, he was going to be leading a seminar at 8 a.m. So I had the possibility of being like 15, 20 feet away from him. So I showed up 45 minutes early, got a seat on the front row. I'd be 15 feet away from this hero. It was like a 12-year-old girl at a Taylor Swift concert. And I was no different than Cornelius. Now, I obviously did not bow down in front of him. He would have said the same thing Peter said. You know, been in my heart. I was idolizing this man. It's easy to do. I think, I think we all do it. We can all easily do it. So we need to remember that there's only one person. There's only one person that people bowed down and worshipped who was actually worthy of their praise. On the morning of the resurrection, you remember there were two women who went to the tomb. And instead of finding Jesus in the tomb, they meet him on the road. And he speaks to them. And we're told that they fell down and touched his feet and worshipped him. And he didn't say, get up. He didn't say, stop it, on your feet, I'm just a man. He didn't say that because he was worthy and deserving of their praise. He did so because he was God in the flesh. He was fully human, but he was also fully God. You know, he's the one we've been reading about in Revelation. We'll we'll read verses like he he is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. He's the one about whom every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea will say, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Cornelius uh, learns this lesson that we are to give honor and glory and worship to God alone. And as he makes clear, he will not share it with another well, when we push ahead in the text, remember, we're still preparing, and we see the greatest example of that here. Cornelius gives background information that we looked at last week about his vision and the angel and what was said. But then he says something really interesting. Look at the last half of verse 33. Call this 33b. Everyone's there, Peter has arrived. His friends and family are all surrounding him. And Cornelius stands up and says, Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That's a huge statement. He's saying God has prepared us. He's prepared me. He's prepared my people. He has brought you to us, Peter. We are all in his presence. We are open. We have a desire to hear his word from you so that that word might give us salvation. And so speak. Speak the word that he has commanded you. Man, when we apply that to the local church, it is dumbfounding to consider. You know, this is one of those passages in Scripture that will humble a pastor unlike any other. As I'm reading and writing this in my office during the week, my eyes are huge as I'm standing there at my computer. That the church gathers in the presence of God and that I'm called to speak all that I've been commanded. And I've got a sign pinned on the wall on my bookshelf just as a reminder, and it says, I can't remember where I found it. I read it somewhere. And it says, The preacher prays over his message, personally absorbing every point. Then, with fear and trembling, God's spokesman steps before the people. That idea of being God's spokesman, being his errand boy, is is a humbling fact that makes your eyes get big. That's what Peter is uh, doing here. He's shown up. He's God's spokesman to the people, and Cornelius says, we are here uh, to hear everything that you've been commanded. There's a reminder here that Peter had to say what he'd been commanded to say, not what he wanted to say. There's another office sign that was on R.C. Sproul's desk. And it read, quote, I am required to teach what God's word says, not what I want it to say. So every day as he would prep and write, he would see that and remember, I am commanded to teach what God's word says, not what I want it to say. So what we see here is that when God's word is faithfully taught, when we say what God wants it to say, when we proclaim it rightly, you are hearing from the Lord. When I and others proclaim it rightly and faithfully, you're hearing from the Lord. Now, the reason we've gathered this morning is just that. I talked about this in my prayer earlier. I mentioned it. Hopefully, the reason you've come here and the reason you come every week is not to be entertained. You can find much better places to be entertained, I promise. It's not to hear jokes either. You can go and find guys who will stand behind a pulpit and they're better comedians than me. And it's not to hear my thoughts on the latest latest culture war or my thoughts on what's going on in Washington, D.C. The purpose for being here is to gather with God's people in God's presence and to hear what he commands. We see that in the last half of verse 33. Now, therefore... We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. As we've gone through Acts, I've been adding prayer requests. If you have a list of prayers that you pray through during the week, I've been adding some to that list in time, and I've got a couple more for you. First, would you pray that God would prepare me? during the week that he would prepare me to lead worship that he would give me the words to say and that I would be faithful and say what he commands not what I want to say and then number two pray that he would prepare you that he would prepare you to hear what he would have for you This audience that Peter encounters at Cornelius' home, this is the most receptive audience ever. This is the audience that the preacher just salivates for. It's an audience, their hearts are prepared, they're ready to hear what the Lord has to say to them, and they're saying, preach to us, Peter. You can pray throughout the week that the Lord would prepare your heart Pray Saturday evening that the Lord would prepare you for what's coming the next day. Wake up praying Sunday morning. Lord, I'm about to gather with your people. Prepare my heart to receive whatever message you have for me. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Acts, he writes this. He says, quote, When you go to church, do you want to receive a good message? If so, the best way is to come with a prepared heart. I know that the preacher must be prepared too. But when God prepares the messenger as well as those who are to hear him, tremendous things happen as they did in Caesarea in the house of Cornelius. Quote. So would you join me in praying that the Lord would prepare all of us that our hearts would be tender and that we would be given ears to hear and eyes to see all that he has for us. Now again, this is where we're ending today. I was planning on making it all the way to verse 43, but that's going to have to wait for next week. Beginning next week in verse 34, we're going to see Peter open his mouth. We're ending with Cornelius saying, hey, we're all here. We're ready. Preach, brother. And next week, we'll see Peter do just that, open his mouth, and in those ten verses, bring the message of salvation that they were waiting for. The good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it's not only for the Jews, but it is for all people. And in these verses, we will see just exactly who the Savior is and what he has done May the Lord prepare us all to hear it. Let's pray together. Father God, what a humbling truth it is to remember that you are a God who uses human instruments. You are a God who entrusts the treasure of your gospel to broken, cracked clay vessels like myself that you will use your ministers, your elders, to shepherd and to bring your word to your people. Father, I pray that you would assist me in being faithful and never proclaiming what I want to proclaim or what I think is right, but always what you would have for me. Father, would you prepare our people would they be reminded and know that they have not gathered to be entertained or to laugh or hear jokes or to hear commentary but father we are here to to hear from you we have gathered in your presence father we ask that this would be a sweet time that it would be a time of refreshing that it would be a a, a time that is life-giving, because we're hearing from the one who is the author and source of life. Father, we ask that you would do this and that you would change us, that you might be magnified and receive all the glory and all the praise. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.